Let's pray together. Lord, you are good and you are all-knowing and you are in control. And so we exalt in you, O Lord, this morning. We glory in you, the great and the living God, that you made us and you made us for yourself. You made us that our lives would be yours, that all of life would not just be sad and a phrase that we would live all to the glory of God, but you made us that we would live all and do all we do for the glory of God. And in doing that is joy. So contrary to what the world says and even what our flesh would press upon us, it is only that we find fullness of joy when we glorify you. Or as one preacher said, we are, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so we come looking to you as the source of life, as the hope, as the one we need. And as we come to your word this morning, help us to see the power of your word that you and your grace and your mercy have given it to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we do not need or, or we are not to go around as though we're wandering in the dark. You have given us your word. You have revealed yourself to us. And your word is living and active. It's not stale. It doesn't just sit and do nothing, but you use it, and by your spirit, you use your word to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Indeed, we see that no creature is hidden from your sight. As much as we want to hide, we would like to hide our sin, we would like to hide who we are, we would like to hide away that no one would know who we are, we go on doing that since Genesis 3, wanting to hide away. But your word exposes us, and you call us to come into the light. You call us not to come with lofty selves, but with humbled selves. And so help us to come humbly to your word this morning, and to take it up and receive it. And no longer hide or flee, but run to you, not from you. And so be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we'll continue with verses 7 through through 12 this Lord's Day. Sam was a man of God who deeply loved Christ. He loved his wife and his ten children, and he sincerely aimed to lead them well. He prayed for them, he led them in the things of God, in the worship of God. 
We set aside time as a family to get together and read the Word of God. And he longed to see them flourish in the Son of God. He faithfully served in his church. He was not, unash- he was not ashamed to say, I am a sinner, but Christ is the great Savior. He knew his failings. He was not a perfect man, but he was known as a man of integrity, a man of the word. One day, while he was at work, he got a phone call. It was bad news. Their house and all that they had in it was lost in a terrible fire. Thankfully, his wife and his children, they were not there during the fire, and so no one was harmed. However, as soon as he puts or put the phone down, immediately it started ringing again. And this time, he is absolutely horrified to hear that his children, all ten of them, died in a terrible car wreck. And as you can imagine, Sam is absolutely undone. Fire, no home. His children, all ten of them, whom he's raised over years and years and years, all of them dead. And then after hearing all of this and experiencing such great loss, a few days later he developed a very serious skin disease where sores were all over his body from top to bottom and the pain was absolutely unbearable. Now what would he do? What would he do facing all of these things? What would you do Would you throw up your hands, perhaps? Would you just give up? Would you just say, okay, I am done with God. I'm done with all this stuff. Would you reject God? Well, Sam didn't do any of those things. He fell on the ground, and he worshiped God. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Of course, by now, you might have recognized that this story wasn't really about a man named Sam. It was about the real biblical figure, Job, who really faced all of that and more. So let me ask you, as you hear that, how indeed might you have responded? All those things. Or how might you respond? There's no 
promise that something like that may not happen to you. Well, this morning, James, in these verses, he wants to teach us and he wants to prepare us for suffering. For suffering that's hard, for suffering that's deep, and for suffering that's prolonged and perhaps lasts not for days but for months or perhaps for years or maybe even for the rest of your life. He wants you and I to learn to trust God. He wants you to love God and to learn to wait on the Lord even then. So to see this, let's read here then, beginning with James chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 1 to start with for the sake of context. So chapter 5, verse 1, I'll be reading to verse 12. May God bless the reading of his good and true word this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that you may not fall under condemnation. We began this book now some months ago. And as we began, we began by saying, and you'll remember how we started, saying that James was like what? A bull. (laughs) From 
beginning to end. He just goes on, bounding onward, bounding forward. Ready or not, he's going to tell you like it is. Well, now at this point in chapter 5, we can say that we have seen exactly that. (laughs) We have seen the bull let loose from chapter after chapter after chapter. Yet as I say that, and as we started that way, let me also say this, that that's not all that we can say of James, though. That's not the only demeanor of James, though. He's not just tough. He doesn't just tell you like it is. He's not just tough. He's also tender. We've actually seen this in a number of places throughout this letter already, and we see it here. While he just appealed to the unbelieving rich in verses 1 through 6 that I just read, here he now turns to encourage believers. Believers who are suffering and who are suffering in many ways because of the unbelieving rich that we just read about. And so what he's aiming to here is he's looking out and he's seeing you. He's seeing believers that are suffering. And he is coming and he's aiming to help you up off of the floor. He's aiming to pick you up. And he's saying, all right, now let me point you where your eyes need to be. And he's aiming to direct your gaze upward. In all love and all tenderness. And so he's encouraging you in the midst of suffering, abound in godly, purposeful patience. Abound in godly, purposeful patience. Now in some ways we've already seen this. And you'll remember Exactly where we've seen this. You remember the opening words of chapter 1 of James. How did he begin in verses 2 through 4? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, know that the testing of your faith produces a word we see now again in these verses, our verses today. Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's tenderness there. And he goes on in verse 12 of chapter 1. And he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so now James, he is saying here in our verses, brothers, sisters, be patient. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. 
and be patient specifically in view of the second coming of Christ. Be patient in view of the second coming of Christ. And so as the believers here faced their persecutors, as they, as they faced injustices, and even as they faced murder, James is saying, brothers, sisters, you need to know something. You need to know that God knows. He knows and he will make all things right. And that's part of what we saw in verses 1 through 6. Yet he's saying more here as well, isn't he? He's calling for us to have a demeanor of waiting. And that waiting, it's not just kind of blind. That waiting is not empty. It is God-centered waiting. But what in the world does that mean? God-centered waiting. It means our waiting is not centered upon circumstances or governments or the morality of our day like right now. It's not centered upon any of those things. It's not centered upon you. It's a waiting that perpetually looks away from all those things and looks and waits on the Lord. And it does that not if the Lord comes, but until He comes. Until the coming of the Lord, verse 7. And why? Because He will come. (laughs) He will return. And so James is saying, brothers, sisters, hold fast. Endure. Don't give up. He is coming. And it is certain that He's coming. Ringing in our ears as He says these words is the persistent scriptural exhortation, wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. As David, he says in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait. And then you will rest. And then you will see justice. And then all pain, all sorrow, and all suffering will be no more. That is what's coming for you if you know Christ this morning. And so he illustrates this. He illustrates what our demeanor of waiting is to look like. And he does that by giving three examples of patience. And the first is that of the farmer. Now, if you know farmers, farmers are professional waiters, like not waiters like in a restaurant, but they're professionals at waiting. And I pastored some farmers 
years ago, and wow, they were, and they are. They plant, they water, and they wait. <laughs> they don't just don't, they don't do anything in the meantime. They're working all along. But they plant, they water, and they wait. And they don't go on doing all that, though, dependent on themselves. They depend on all sorts of things, right? They depend on the weather. They depend on the soil. Or as James says here, they depend on the early and late rains. Well, you and I were to wait like that. And not, not generally, though, but as those who are entrusting everything we are, everything we have to God. We are looking to Him as those who are dependent upon Him until He takes us home. Every day, every meal. That's why when you pray before your meals, it's not like you're just kind of like, let's just pray because this is what we do. You're recognizing, I am dependent on you for this. Every time. And so we need to see right now on December 18th, 2022, that God is at work aiming everything that's going on in the world right now, everything in this direction, in the bringing about of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. All of it, including your suffering, for His glory, and to conform you into the image of His Son. Not one bit of suffering in your life is ever, ever wasted. And so then we're told in verse 8, see, Establish your hearts for or because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It seems like James wants you to be certain of this, doesn't it? (laughs) Even though we've now been waiting for 2,000 years, we can say the exact same thing James says here. God is not pulling one up over us, like pulling something on us here, or pulling one over us here. He's not fooling us and be like, well, sorry, I actually mean like a million years later. Christ is coming. And we don't know how near, but it is near. Very near. Even right around the corner near. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And yet, as we say all that, we need to remember also what Megan read a moment ago from Matthew 24, don't we? 
verses 36 to 51. Jesus, he told us in verse 44 of chapter 24 of Matthew, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's coming, but it will be unexpected. And so we're not to go around as so many false prophets do, and I mean that, by the way, that when you hear someone predict that Christ is coming, I have 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988, and that doesn't happen, Deuteronomy 18 says something very distinctly, very definitively about them. He says that they are a false prophet in the Old Testament. We don't do this today. Christ has come, but they would have been stoned. And you need to see them as a false prophet because that's what they are. We're not to go around as so many false prophets do and say it will be this year or that year. Jesus told us that we will not know. Matthew 24, 36. You want to know what the track record has been of those who have predicted the year that Jesus will return? Well, you're sitting here, right? They've been 100% wrong. All of them false prophets. Well, rather than going on like that, you and I need to go on and be wise. And that's right. Be discerning. Yes. Know the word of God. Be ready and be expectant. Even longing for Christ to return. Wait as though those who know he will return and be ready when he does. That's to be your demeanor. I'm ready right now. I'm not hoping in my home. I'm not hoping in my job. I'm not hoping in America. I'm not hoping in anything in this world. I am hoping in Christ. That's to be your heart. That's being ready. Be ready when he comes. So that's the first example of the farmer. Second, he gives the example of the prophets. Verse 10. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know that the prophets, wow, they did suffer greatly. (laughs) And pretty much continually. Yet, in the midst of their suffering... What did they do? (laughs) They waited on the Lord. They were patient. Not because, like, they're over here, like, way up here, way, way down here, like, they're the Navy SEALs of prophets, like, way out of reach. Like, we're we're not even near that today. I mean, James, he's going to talk about that here in a little bit with Elijah. 
That's not why they were that way. Why they were waiting on the Lord and they were faithful. It wasn't because they were looking to themselves. It was because they weren't looking to themselves. They were looking to God. Not men. Not the world. Not circumstances. Not the troubles that they were facing. Though they were tried in great ways and they suffered deeply, they pressed on speaking God's word faithfully. Even as people didn't listen to them. (laughs) Even as people don't listen to you. You also are to go and speak the word of God faithfully. Are we not being tempted in the same way today? We need to learn from them, from the prophets, and keep going, keep speaking. I know you'll face suffering. You may lose your job. You may lose your home. You may lose all sorts of things. But be faithful. Preach the word. And don't stop. As those who are not looking to themselves. But to the Lord. As their hope. Third example. We've met him already. The third example he gives us is Job. Verse 11. He says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And so Job was, right? But not before he lost everything. Before God restored Job's wealth and gave him seven more sons and three more daughters and restored his health. How incredibly deeply he suffered. It was worse than we can even imagine. I mean, just you can imagine it, how many tears he cried, what sleepless nights he had. We know he had those what depth of despair he had, what brokenness of soul. Yet even so, amidst all of that and his own sins, because you see that too in Job. That's why he had to repent in dust and ashes. At the end of Job. But at the end of it all, what rises to the top is his steadfastness. His faith and hope was in God. All the waves of all these things coming at him. And his eyes just looked up and said, I don't know how to handle all this. I can't explain all this. God, please answer me. I don't know what this is, but my hope is you. You are my redeemer. I know my redeemer lives. And it's you. I can't go anywhere else. That's what Job did. In his life. When many might say God has no purpose and plan and all that stuff. 
Yeah, that, that suffering you're encountering right now, you, God has no purpose in that. That's not at all what Job, how he looked at things. And that's not at all how things are. The book of Job and James here says, no, <laughs> that's not right, dear brother and sister. See God's purpose right in the thick of all of those things. See as you suffer God's great compassion and mercy. See the purpose of the Lord in your suffering. He is working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do you believe that as you suffer? As you and your spouse argue once again? Could it be that the Lord is after your you husband and your you wife, your sanctification. More than whether you're comfortable. More than whether it's hard. He's saying perhaps maybe there are some things in your heart that you are not dealing with. And husband, wife, you need to be like me and less like yourself. And so it is the purpose of the Lord in your life. See his compassion and mercy in your sufferings, in your persecutions, in your trials. He's not changed. He is the same today as he was then in the book of Job. And Job, he doesn't, he doesn't look out and say, oh man, I'm going to have to find some way to say God didn't do any of this. He falls down. God has given. God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he is right. Yes. That's how you're to view your life and sufferings and bow in worship before the living God. So in view of these examples, in James's words here, may you and I, as we face all variety of sufferings in this world, trust in God, trust in his word, and trust in his purposes in the midst of suffering. He says there in verse 8b through c, establish your hearts. Like a fence post in the ground, let your hearts deeply trust in God, trust in His Word, and trust in His good purposes. Trust Him and be patient, endure, be steadfast as you hurt, as you fear, as you are lost in the thick of everything, there is one thing that you know that you can trust in, one person that you know is unmoved, and that is God.
Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. What is Advent? Well, it, it means in Latin, coming, approach. But it anticipates and it looks forward to Christmas, to Christ's first coming. Well, as we are in this time of Advent now, know this, as certain as was his first coming, so is his second. He will come, believers. That means victory is yours. No matter what you're facing in this world, He is coming. So believe. Trust Him. When persecutors come, when people deny God's Word, when conflicts arise, when spiritual warfare rages, when injustices abound, when you suffer, when your health, it takes a terrible turn. When you experience loss, and then you experience loss again. Trust Him. And know even then that He is at work for your good, shaping and forming you and me into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Forming us, not for this world, but for His. And yet, as you face all of that, all these sufferings, you will be challenged in other ways as well. And James, he brings up two of these challenges here in verse 9 and verse 12. In tenderness again, he exhorts you in the midst of suffering, abound also in godly words. Abound also in godly words. In suffering and trials, we need to recognize the temptation grumble to grumble verse 9 this is exactly what he says there he's urging you as you face those waves not to complain not to be discontent and not to grumble in what what's at the heart of grumbling Unbelief. Unbelief. Did you know that's why you grumble? (laughs) There's something at that moment you are not believing. And contrary to what you may think or feel at the time, grumbling is not good. It is like a cannonball going through your life and other people's lives, and its damage will be extensive. Even more, it forgets that the judge is coming and he is coming soon. What you say 
you will give an account for. And so we need to recognize that this will be a temptation. You will be tempted as the suffering comes, as the persecutors come, as whatever may come, conflicts come. You'll be tempted to grumble. And what might you be tempted to say? Take me back to Egypt. (laughs) That's what you'll be tempted to say. Like the Israelites did in the wilderness. It was easier when I wasn't a Christian. Take me back to the world where they accepted me and took me in and I could just blend right in to the darkness. I wouldn't have to be a light in the midst of that. As they say this about marriage, as they say this about gender, I can just blend in and they'll accept me with open arms. Take me back to Egypt. That's what you're doing when you grumble. Yet, friends, do not be fooled. A temptation is just that, it's not leading you towards life. It's not leading you towards God. It's leading you to death and to what will destroy you. And so we need to see the very real temptation that every single one of us have, me included, to grumble when suffering comes. And then also we need to see another temptation. Recognize Another temptation that you'll experience in suffering is the temptation to make ungodly promises. Now, outside of James telling us this, I doubt many of you are thinking that. <laughs> You're not thinking, okay, well, I'm afraid I'll make some ungodly promises when, I, when suffering happens. You know, is that what you were afraid of? Well, it will be a temptation. And that's what verse 12 is about here. What he's saying here may sound strange to us, but I think that actually is saying a lot. Because what we say and the weightiness of our words has been somewhat lost in our day. We simply just do not care. (laughs) We'll let whatever come out of our mouth we want to say. James is saying, may it not be. May we take back our words and what we say, as James has already called us to again and again, may we take back our words to the glory of God. And so what was the issue here? Why in the world is he talking about oaths and swearing? Yes, it be yes and no be no. So why does he bring this up? Well, just consider... This is still in the context of suffering. When bill collectors begin coming to these believers who are defrauded by the rich and they don't have any money, what do you think they're going to be tempted to say? What are they going to be tempted to do? Well, make deceptive, hasty oaths. Saying, of course. 
yeah, I'll, I'll pay it. I'll do it. When they know they can't and they know they won't. And James is saying, don't do that. Don't put a stain on the gospel with your words. Be people of integrity. Now, how might this work today? You may still think, okay, well, this is, this is well out of the range of something I'm going to encounter. Well, let's just say something like this happens today. How might this work? Well, persecution comes, which it may well come sooner than later for us as Americans. Maybe you or your church, our church, is maligned. You're robbed and even taxed in a way that now we have little to nothing, hardly any money to be able to do anything. And so now here comes the bill collector, Haven Baptist Church. Here comes the bill collector to you, believer, who persecutors came and stole all you have. Where is your payment? You pay up or I'm going to kick you out, you and your family. Oh, your family, your children, your infants. Well, maybe now you see the dilemma. What would you do in a case like that? Now, your gut response to what I just asked, you just said like, well, I'm going with my kids. That's telling you a lot about where your heart is. It's telling you a lot about where you are and what you believe. And that is not a condemnation coming at you right now. James and God, he is saying, brother, or believers in Christ, See what you are to do. See how I'm calling you to trust me even then. That I am faithful and you can bank everything on me even then. So let your yes be yes. And your no be no. Whose building is this? Whose home is that you have? Is it yours? <laughs> all that stuff? All these pews? Whose things are these? Who has given you every single thing that you have? That we have? It's not your checkbook. <laughs> Who gave you that? And so what will you do? What will you do? Well, James, he is telling us what we are to do in such cases as suffering, trials, people defrauding us, persecuting us. We are to speak in the fear of the Lord. Speak in the fear of the Lord. Walk in godly integrity with your words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Be wise, yes. Be careful, yes. Be discerning, yes. But walk in God-centered faith even then. That's what he's calling them to. That's what he's calling us to. Don't deceive. Don't speak or walk in ways that will malign God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are far too loose with our words and our promises. As we have done so often as we have walked through this letter, we need to remember James or the words of Jesus when he said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So as we hear all of this about grumbling and promises, God is calling you to ask what is in your heart, believer? And that's not pointing you away from him. It's pointing you towards him. That is God's mercy and compassion towards you right now. And so God is calling you and I to godliness and a faith that is firmly in God in his word as you face all these things. And so before God and his word this morning, know what you are to do. Know what you are to do. Abound in stout-hearted, godly trust in our great and coming King. That's what you're to do. Winston Churchill, <clears throat> he became Prime Minister of England in May 1940. And what was set before him was not peace, but war. War with Germany and what we now know as, as you know well, as World War II. When his first speech as Prime Minister, he told the House of Commons on Monday, May 13th, concerning that war, I would say to the House, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us many long months of struggle and suffering, you ask me what is our policy. I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength God can give us against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the lamentable catalog of human crime. You ask me what is our aim. I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Well, friends, let me ask you, what have we seen is before us this morning?
amidst all the war, all the suffering, and everything. It's not Egypt. It's not doom. It's victory. Christ is our victory. And he is the one who is before us. He is our future forever. So in view of such a victory, may it be that you would wait and trust in him until he comes. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we we do, we look to you now. You have shown us our hearts and as you're dealing with them even now, may you help us, Father. I I don't know what's ahead of us, but I know you're ahead of us. (laughs) We know you're ahead of us. And we know Christ is our victory. And so, Lord, help us come this morning with you before us and respond as you may lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.